How do you translate personal history into narrative? How can memory and family become universal story? Welcome to episode 12 of Exegesis, featuring the work of Melissa Hunter, as read by Bernard Friedman. Introduction by the author. My father is an immigrant. He came to America with his family shortly after World War II. I was compelled to write this story from my father's point of view to show the hardship my family and other immigrants faced upon arrival and ultimately the success they found in this country we call home. Our America by Melissa Hunter When my father's brothers began the journey to America, my mother begged my father to join them. First, my father's youngest brother, Joseph, was sent to New York to apprentice as a tailor. Then Pincus, my father's closest brother, was sent to Cincinnati, Ohio. Let us go to Herco, she pleaded. Let us begin a new life as well. There is nothing left for us here but bad memories. My father agreed, and we boarded a boat, the General M.B. Stewart where we spent two weeks in steerage in the belly of the cargo ship. With not enough money for a cabin, we slept in bunks with other poor passengers, alongside huge crates and luggage. The trip was turbulent. A storm followed us. I cried from the rocking of my world and suffered a terrible earache. At night, as my mother held me to her and sang lullabies to soothe me, I heard the scuffling sound of rats in search for crumbs. I was four years old. The day of our arrival, we pressed onto the deck of the ship as the shoreline reached out to meet us. The cold of a November winter was brutal, but we didn't care. I watched as the statue of a woman in bellowing green arm raised to the sky, grew ever larger in my vision. My mother held me in her arms as my father held tightly to her hand. He pushed his way to the front of the deck so we could see our new country growing larger before us. He lifted me onto his shoulders and pointed to the skyline where buildings larger than I'd ever seen rose like towers to the clouds. This is our new home, Levy, he said. This is America. I could sense my parents' excitement. I looked at my mother and said, America, Mama. She nodded and stroked my cheek. The ship anchored at Ellis Island. There were too many things to see, and I quickly became overwhelmed. I buried my head against my father's neck as foghorns blew and other ships pressed closely to ours. Seagulls circled above and against the gray clouds, their cries lost in the din. We shuffled into a crowded building where a man took the papers my father handed him. He stamped each one with hardly a glance at us. Then he spoke something in a strange language my father didn't understand. My mother stared blankly at him. Finally, he looked, and looked up and pointed at each of us in turn. To my father, he said, Harry. To my mother, he said, Sally. To me, he said, Larry. 
My father repeated the foreign words, confusion, turning the string of syllables into a question. The man only turned and pointed to a wall lined with doors behind him. Still confused, we followed the throng of immigrants that filed past the doors into a series of rooms where we were carefully examined. Someone tried to pull me away from my mother and I began to cry. I'm here, Levy, she said almost desperately, rushing to my side and holding my hands as a sharp comb was raked through my hair. We were poked and prodded. Metal claws pulled back our eyelids. Tongue depressors were stuck in our mouths. Hands searched our bodies. Finally, we were released to join a crowd of people in a dining hall filled with long wooden tables. I held my father's hand as he approached the counter and glanced at the sign hanging on the wall, listing the menu in a variety of languages. He bought paper-wrapped sandwiches for all of us, hot chocolate for me, and coffee for him and my mother. As we ate, men in strange clothes approached us and spoke to my father. I watched as they struggled to understand each other. My father kept nodding and saying, Yes, I am Herco. The men led us outside and into a waiting car that pulled out into a sea of cars. I pressed my face to the glass. I had only been in a car a few times before. I was excited at the speed, at the sound of the horn as the man drove us through the city. My mother kept reaching for me. Be still, Levy, she said as she held me tighter than she ever had before. I began to squirm. The man in the passenger seat turned and looked at us in the back. He smiled gently, but shook his head, nodded at me, and said in a firm tone, Larry. We drove for a long time. The buildings of the city dwarfed us. There were people on both sides of the street. When the car stopped at intersections, they swarmed around us. They pressed close to the door. My mother looked afraid. I didn't understand. This seemed like a grand adventure, and I was excited to be away from the water and the rocking of the ship and the endless gray sky. Here there was color. Ladies in fancy coats and hats passed by. Men in suits carrying satchels and umbrellas looked smart as they hurried across intersections. Our long, dark coats and hats and scarves and boots looked strange in comparison. I pointed at everything, saying, Papa, Mama, look! Eventually, my excitement turned to exhaustion, and I settled against my mother, blinking rapidly to keep from falling asleep. When the car came to a stop, I woke abruptly eager to look out the window again. Instead of the majestic buildings from before, we were parked in front of a series of ugly-looking tenements with staircases that ran at uniform intervals along the outside walls. We followed the men up one of the staircases. Waiting outside one of the doors on a second-floor balcony was a woman who smiled and spoke to us in our own language. Welcome, she said as she shook hands with my father. My name is Anna, she informed us. 
I am with the Jewish Federation serving European refugees and displaced persons. Herker Wertheiser, my father introduced himself. No, no, the woman said, when you arrived, they should have given you new names. She asked to see the passports and the papers my father had been given earlier. She pointed at the scrawl on the bottom of each page. You see, she explained, you now have American variations of your Polish and German names. It's easier on the tongue here. You are now Harry, she said to my father. Your wife is Sally and your son, she said as she ruffled my hair, is Larry. New names, my father asked in confusion. My mother looked distressed and lifted me in her arms. Yes, Mr. Wertheiser. And where are we, he asked. New Jersey. Here is your new housing assignment. She unlocked the door and stepped aside. My father entered first, followed by my mother. I had to blink before my eyes focused on the small room. It was a one-bedroom apartment with a closet of a kitchen adjacent to a room in which we stood. My mother set me on my feet and walked forward with a small gasp. The apartment as a whole was not much larger than the living room of the home we had left. The furniture was sparse. Blinds were closed over the only window, and dust lined everything. Herco, my mother whispered. Her eyes watered. We will leave you to get settled, Anna said, seemingly oblivious to our bewilderment an alarm. My brothers, my father said, when will I see them? Anna consulted a clipboard that she pulled from a bag and her eyes scanned over the page. She frowned slightly, but then looked up and smiled over a flicker of doubt. Tomorrow we will send a car for you. Expect us early in the morning. You will come with us to finish your paperwork. At that time we will answer any questions you might have. But for now, rest and unpack. You have had a long journey to your new home. There is food in the refrigerator for your supper. So please, have a good evening. And welcome to America. When the doors closed behind her, my mother rushed across the room and quickly drew the chains across the locks. She turned and looked at my father imploringly. Herco, we cannot stay here, she cried. He held up his hand. He appeared to be thinking. He walked to the window and pulled the blinds. Directly across from us was a smokestack belonging to a large industrial factory. Black smoke poured from the smokestack into the darkening sky. My mother put her hand to her mouth. Papa, look, I said, pointing across the room at something that moved quickly underneath a chair in the corner of the room. My mother screamed. I ran to her, hugging her leg. She lifted me quickly. My father pushed us into the little bedroom and chased the black rat out of the apartment door onto the balcony outside. My mother was openly sobbing now. My father slammed the door and said firmly, Sarah, there is food for dinner. We will eat, and then tomorrow we will leave here to be with my brothers, or demand to be sent back to Germany. The women at the New York branch of the Jewish Federation were appalled at the idea that we would want to go back to the country and the memories from which we had fled. My father spoke in angry Yiddish to Anna. 
the only one of them who spoke our language. I was making a living there. We had a decent home. We have a family there still. You understand? But now my brothers have come to this country. We were all together in Germany after the war. But here you separate us. You put my family in a place that can only be compared to a prison. There was a rat the size of a dog that frightened my son. I demand that you send us to my brothers or us passage on the next ship leaving this place. You don't understand, Anna said urgently. We must place immigrants in designated cities only. There are quotas to be met. There are limited places to house you and only so many jobs we can offer. This country is only so large. Surely we can stay with my brother in New York or my brother other brother in Cincinnati, my father insisted. She laughed almost desperately. New York is not an option, she said. There is simply no housing available, and Cincinnati, well, it's too great a distance. I thought you said this country is only so large, my father pointed out. It's not customary to just relocate you to another city, Anna said vehemently. You are assigned to take up work in New Jersey. To hell with this New Jersey, my father interrupted. We will go back to Germany then. Anna turned from us and pressed her palms on the desk before her. She looked at the confused faces of her co-workers. In a rush, explaining to them everything my father had said, they seemed as shocked as she was. One woman flipped through the series of papers, all the while shaking her head. She held up a sheet and muttered something in a doubtful tone. Anna took the paper, turned back to my father, and said, Very well, Mr. Wertheiser. We will see if we can book passage for you on a train to Cincinnati, Ohio. I doubt my parents knew how long it would take us to reach Ohio from New York. They didn't know the distance that separated the two states, or for that matter, the breadth of the country as a whole. We sat in our seats on the train, watching the miles pass outside our window. My father kept shaking his head, murmuring that it was a sin for Joseph and Pincus to live so far apart. What are they trying to do, he asked. Keep family members from each other after all we've done to stay together? When the city skyline grew distant and the fields rose up around us, my mother finally relaxed. This was a landscape with which she was more familiar. I, however, watched the line of buildings grow smaller and smaller in amazement. I had never seen a city so large or filled with so many people. Now seeing New York from a distance, grand and imposing, was like seeing a slumbering giant on the cusp of waking. The buildings moved away slowly, ever expanding outward. I watched the way the field grasses rushed past the window, the way the trees beyond moved at a more gradual pace, and shadowing it all was a metropolis so vast that it took the darkened shape of a mountain rising above the entire countryside. Even at age four, I knew I would like this country. My mother fell asleep while holding me. Her whole soft body fell around me in folds. My father glanced at us. Whenever he looked at my mother, 
His expression would become serious, as though concentrating deeply. When he'd looked at me, his face would sometimes crumble in grief. This was rare. He usually smiled or winked or pulled me on his lap and tweaked my nose. But when I saw the sadness in his eyes, I worried. Now he was staring at us so intensely that I asked him if something was wrong. Are you going to cry, Papa? I asked. No, Levy, he said softly. I am happy right now, son. I thought nothing of seeing my parents cry. It was a common occurrence, especially from my mother. She had wandered the rooms of our home like a lost child. Even in her own kitchen, she would forget herself, would stop and stare at nothing, as still and unmoving as the furniture. When I pulled on her skirt to get her attention, her hands came up to her cheeks to wipe at the tears that fell silently from her eyes. I wouldn't discover until I was older that crying was something most adults tried to keep private from their children. The New York Jewish Federation had contacted the Cincinnati branch, which in turn had notified my uncle and his family. When the train finally pulled onto the station, we were met by the familiar faces of our relatives. My parents waved excitedly through the windows as we passed down the aisle of the train to the door. Pincus, my father exclaimed from the top step, lifting his hat and waving it above his head. He stepped down and turned, taking me from my mother's arms and helping her down. Instantly we were surrounded. My father and uncle hugged. My mother and her sister-in-law held each other fiercely, kissing each other on the cheeks. I stared at the young boy who held my aunt's hand and gazed back at me. He was my cousin, Marty. I had seen him a few times before they left Germany, but hardly remembered him. He looked very much like me, with his hair falling in curls around his ears, like mine. When they had left the year before, my cousin Regina had a baby. Now she peeked out at us from behind my aunt. My mother smiled at her and turned to my aunt. Such a Shana Medela, she said. We are family again, my aunt said, and together they enfolded us in a warm hug. Because we had not originally been sent to Cincinnati, there was no housing available for us. We moved in with my uncle and his family. Their apartment, the second floor of a two-family home, was small and cramped with the addition of my family, but it was brighter than the apartment we had been given in New Jersey and it was located in a quiet neighborhood north of the city. My father and mother slept in the living room on a sofa that folded out into a bed. I slept with my cousin. We alternated between sleeping on his twin-sized bed and a feather mattress on the floor. The first night there, my mother insisted that I be given the bed. Marty complained irritably, but this is my bed. Why should he sleep there? Although we were uncertain of each other at first, our shared language and family customs soon strengthened our bond. I grew to see Marty not as a cousin but as a brother. Our mothers would take us for walks in the park, pushing my cousin Regina in a stroller and tell us how we were born less than a day apart. Marty on the night of August 25th 
and I on the morning of August 26th. When summer came, we celebrated our fifth birthday together, with cake and ice cream melting on our fingers. We played with the other children on our street, Grinas, like ourselves who spoke Yiddish with different Eastern European accents. As most children do, I soon forgot my home in Germany. My memories were transient, each day's events quickly rewriting those of the day before. I loved the activity in our home. I had two sets of parents who constantly spoiled my cousins and myself. Sometimes it seemed like a competition between my mother and aunt to see who could shower us with the most love and praise. There was a desperation in their need to keep us happy. We went often to the parks and playgrounds of our neighborhood. We ran beneath hoses and ate watermelon during the heat of the summer. We played games of jacks and tags in the evening while our fathers sat on the outside steps smoking cigarettes and our mothers cooked in the humid kitchen. My father took me into the city to watch the barges on the Ohio River and the trains that pulled in and out of the station where we had first arrived. These were my favorite afternoons. I was six when I started school for the first time. It was September of 1952. I attended a Hebrew day school, and I had a teacher who did not speak a word of Hebrew, Yiddish, or German. Up until that time, the language in our home was primarily Yiddish. I watched the teacher anxiously as she held up pictures and spoke to us in short, quick words I could not understand. When I realized that what she was saying referred to the images she was showing us, I felt a rush of understanding. I excitedly repeated with the class every word she said, carefully enunciating every vowel and consonant. I vaguely remembered a finger pointing at me and saying, Larry. Like one of my teacher's pictures, I came to understand myself in American terms. I wanted baseball caps like the other boys I knew. I wanted to chant the same songs they sang when they threw basketballs to one another. I wanted to wear jeans that got scraped in the knees rather than rough pants all the time. I wanted to play on baseball diamonds and ride bikes with red, white, and blue streamers flapping from the handlebars. In class, I went by Larry. With my growing circle of friends, I went by Larry. The only ones who called me Levy anymore were my family. I was determined to infuse our household with English. I followed my mother around as she cleaned, holding up different articles and calling them by their English names. Look, Mama, this is a fork, F-O-R-K. This is a lamp, L-A-M-P. This is a newspaper. This is a pillow. We recited the English alphabet each day and practiced handwriting along with addition and subtraction. Soon, my class was tested on the various words we had learned. On our test paper were boxes with pictures in each one and lines drawn underneath. On the lines, I spelled each item correctly and received a large A on the top of my paper in red ink. I ran home from school and showed my parents, breathless from excitement. What does this mean, my father asked, pointing to the A, his brow furrowed. It's the first letter in the alphabet, Papa, I told him. That means I did well. I didn't get any answers wrong. 
That's wonderful, Levy, my mother exclaimed, hugging me close. You are such a smart, bright child. Do you know the alphabet, Levy, my father asked. Yes, Papa. Will you say it for us? he asked. I nodded and started from the beginning, my voice rising and falling as I sang the little tune my teacher had taught us. As I sang, my parents exchanged a private look. I saw the flicker again, the shadow of grief that came, even in the happiest times. My father was given a job at an office in downtown Cincinnati. One morning over the summer break, he took me with him. We woke early, before the sun was even up, boarding a smoky bus filled with men in suits reading newspapers or dozing in their seats. We arrived at the downtown station before 8 a.m. My father took my hand, and we walked the three or four blocks to a tall office building where a guard greeted us at the outside gate. Morning, Harry, the guard said as he unlocked the gate. My father nodded as we walked past him to a guardhouse where another guard handed him what appeared to be a folded blanket of red, white, and blue. What is that, Papa, I asked. This, my son, is the American flag, he said, holding the flag proudly in his hands. We walked to the flagpole where he lowered hooks that attached to rings along the flag's border. Carefully unfolding the material, he fastened the hooks to the rings and raised the American flag to its full height. The wind caressed the flag, bringing it to life so that it undulated slowly against the ever-brightening sky. My father took his duty very seriously and stood by and watched silently. For the rest of the day, we sat in a little guardhouse playing cards, looking at comics, and eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches from brown paper bags. We stayed until the last worker left at six o'clock. At that time, my father lowered the flag, unhooked it, folded it, and stored it in the guardhouse for the next day. Before going home, my father took me to Mount Adams, a large hill to the east of downtown Cincinnati. We sat on a stone wall that overlooked the row houses climbing the hill, the river curving below us, while I ate Cracker Jacks and my father smoked quietly. He had fallen into a melancholy silence. Papa, what are you thinking about? I asked. He exhaled a cloud of smoke and looked down at me. It seemed to take a second for him to focus. Hirsch, he said softly. That's not my name, Papa. That's my middle name. You know that, I said. He often called me by my middle name. He put his arm around me and said, You're right, son. I'm sorry. After a moment, he added, I've told you this before when you were just a baby, so you probably don't remember. But before you were born, before I even knew your mother, I had another wife and child. My son's name was Hirsch. I was confused. I pulled away to look up at him. What do you mean, Papa? How do you have another son? I have a brother? Had a brother. A brother you never even knew. It was a long time ago in Germany. He grew quiet once again, putting his cigarette to his lips. Does Mama know, I asked. My father nodded, yes, son, your mother knows. 
I wanted to ask a million more questions, but he suddenly pulled me next to him and gestured to the city that spread out below us like a beautiful concrete quilt. From where we sat, we could see the barges on the river, the bridges that linked Ohio and Kentucky, and the skyscrapers that rose in the distance. That was a long time ago, such a long time ago. Now we are here, in our America. You will have the best life here, my son, my father said. That is my promise to you. His words were tinged with a determination I didn't understand, but I put my head against his shoulder and looked down at the river. Our America, I thought. And then I yawned. Can we go home now, Papa? I asked. Yes, Levy, my father said. Let's go home. Published in May of 2017, Melissa W. Hunter is the author of What She Lost and Other Works. She is a writer and blogger from Cincinnati, Ohio, whose articles have been published by Kveller.com, LiteraryMama.com, and BooksByWomen.org. Her debut novel, What She Lost, is inspired by her grandmother's life as a Holocaust survivor. When not at her computer, Melissa loves spending family time with her husband and two beautiful daughters. Let's hear from her now. When did you write this? Uh, what was your mindset? What was going on? Why Why this story? Okay. Okay. Um, I wrote this story, um, I believe it was about two or three years ago. Um, at the time that I was writing it, I was also working on the novel that I have uh, since published about my family's uh, experiences both before and after the Holocaust. Um, this was more a tribute to my father, whereas my novel is a tribute to my grandmother. And the story is my, I grew up with all these stories that my family had shared with me, and I knew that I always wanted to talk about their experiences coming to America after uh, the Holocaust. And I attempted to write this as a, a more of a short story as opposed to a longer piece because I really wanted to capture the feelings that particularly my father, who at the time was only four years old, uh, experienced on the journey from Germany to the United States and having to assimilate. And at the time, there was also a lot in the news about immigrants. And knowing that I came from immigrants, I felt it was a story that, that needed to be told. And that's why I, I decided to write it at that time. Okay. Why, why that voice, I guess, is the next question, meaning um, you, you picked your father's voice, which is uh, very Freudian in a certain way, but also very... Um, <laughs> Let's say an interesting choice just from a writing perspective, meaning right. was it harder or easier? Did it why that voice? It was actually it was actually challenging. Um so as I said before during this whole process I had been working on it on my my grandmother's story and that is told in a much longer piece. So I had to put myself into my grandmother's mindset to tell her experiences as a Holocaust survivor. Um so there were definitely, obviously, similarities I could draw from us both being female, her going through the war at a time when she was 16 to 21 is when she was in the concentration camps. So I could call back on my own experiences as a teenage girl and the emotions and feelings I had at that time. Now, for my father, obviously, I don't, I don't have the same parallels to draw from. But what I was able to do was to imagine seeing America from the eyes of a child because he was so very young. And 
I have, of course, known him as my dad my whole life. He is one of the strongest people I've ever known. Um, he is has supported my family unconditionally, loved us unconditionally. And when I think about the roots where he came from, I, I wanted to show how far our family has come from the time they came onto American shores with really nothing in their pockets and now able to say that, that we have a family business and there's multi-generations of us living here. Um, I was the first of my generation born on American soil. My daughters are now the second generation, and we've been really lucky. And I think I wanted to use him as the central character in my story to show what it was like as a young child and everything that they had to, my family had to accomplish through the eyes of a child to reach the state that they're at right now, which is very much, we are very much American. Yeah. Do you think having written uh, your grandmother first and then going to your father, do you think that was a, a different shift or did you see your father in a different way after having kind of processed him maybe through your uh, your grandmother, meaning now you're seeing mm-hmm. him from the other side? Right. Um, it, it, it ha- this whole experience for me in writing my family's history has been very eye-opening um, because I really do see my I, – it's almost like I see my family as characters. They, they, There's obviously the grandmother I knew growing up who I was very, very close to and my father who has always been one of my my heroes and the greatest supporters – and so now to be able to see them as characters kind of it 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 separates it a little bit so that i i'm hopefully taking a uh a more unbiased view of what of what they experienced because i'm writing them as as a writer myself i'm writing them as characters in a story so i think i think seeing my dad as a as a young child and and seeing him in the lens of a of a child of my grandparents' children as opposed to my father was a very it was it was challenging but it was a very interesting experience as well for me to write from that perspective if that makes sense yeah uh, as I think I emailed you <clears throat> when we were uh, writing back and forth about doing the podcast mm-hmm. excuse me uh, was that I am as well involved in a, a project rewriting my grandparents. Yes. Um, history as well, post-Holocaust. Um, and so I do definitely uh, empathize and sympathize with uh, the perspective of trying to create characters who are also people that you know and, and, yes. and kind of trying to um, figure out how to <laughs> honor the person but also not put the actual person in the character, if that makes sense. Yes, that's, um, a, that, that's exactly right, yeah. Because at the end of the day, I don't know, I guess in order, I don't know if you struggled with like giving yourself permission to write about these uh, topics, which is something I still think about a lot, Um, you know, appropriation Mm -hmm. and how that kind of works with stories, um, especially with family. Uh, But the idea of trying to write the person is like impossible. Um, Yeah, it's just, it would not work. And it's just too personal then. It's just like stymieing more than freeing. Um, And I have to say that I, I actually started the the novel based on my grandmother when I was in college or very shortly after college. So I was in my 20s at the time, and I had the hardest time finding the appropriate voice for my book. 
I tried it in so many different ways. I tried writing it as a series of short stories. I tried it as a as a screenplay at one point. I tried telling it from many different perspectives of my both my grandmother but also her siblings. And I just, like you said, I, I didn't feel that it was – I felt like it was my story to tell because it was my history, my personal history, but I wanted to honor the real people that I was writing about. And I ultimately tabled the story until just about four years ago. I picked it up again, and in the interim, I had gotten married, and I had my own children. And I tell people that in writing my novel, What She Lost, it took me becoming a mother myself to understand, I think, the full extent of the emotions that my grandmother's family experienced as they were living through the war and their own family was being torn apart. And then again, it took me being a mother to imagine what it was like for the for my grandmother and my grandfather to make the journey to America with my father as a young child. I don't think I could have written those stories earlier. I think I needed to have my own life experiences to do it justice. Yeah, I think it's so interesting how our own lives lives and, and life experience will translate into another person's life. And that mm-hmm. um, in some ways, it's, it's, you know, any writer can write any story if they imagine hard enough. And, you know, that I, I kind of believe that on one hand. And on the other hand, there is like the whole just having experienced certain things um, that really, really focuses certain emotions or responses and just clarifies certain aspects that people would go through as they're going through the same things that you were. Um, I, I do find that quite, quite important. Um, I know for me, like having gotten married recently, like I don't, and, and kind of building a family as you were discussing about that, then you start to really understand family in a different way. I mean, thank God I grew up with family, but um, right. until you sort of create your own, you don't realize certain things about how it works or how they interact Absolutely. with each other. And mm-hmm. so the yeah, Holocaust becomes a much different um or at least post-Holocaust for me, and maybe during Holocaust for you and post-Holocaust, um, how family interacts in those situations as well. Absolutely. It's interesting, you know, there's all these studies. Um, to a certain degree, you could. there's an easy answer to this question, which is uh, the Holocaust obviously is a, a large event that was not too far ago that we can remember and, and study. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is this, but is there anything else to the Holocaust or, or your family's history post-Holocaust that kind of drove this avenue of, of writing more than just the the largesse of it, let's say? Sure. Um, and yes, I would say the answer would be yes. I I think what happened for me was my, my grandfather passed away when I was about eight years old. I was very young. But I remember, I was old enough to remember what that did to my grandmother. She married my grandfather within months after they were both liberated from concentration camps and she relied heavily on him for her entire adult life she was dependent on him and when he passed away she pretty much had a a mental breakdown and I saw that from the eyes of an eight-year-old but the memories are very clear and so as I grew up I remember learning obviously more about the historical aspect of the Holocaust but one of the things that I don't think is taught as much is the post-traumatic stress that the survivors lived with their whole lives afterwards. They they picked up the pieces, they started families, but it never left them. And I 
as I grew into an adult myself, I, I saw the lasting scars that the experience has had on future generations. So for me, this is also a cathartic way of writing about that and showing from each generation how that core experience of surviving the Holocaust affected their lives, both the survivors themselves and then their children, and to a lesser extent, uh, our generation, the, the third generation, the grandchildren. And so that, for me, was an, another reason why I really wanted to write the story. Yeah, trauma is, a, uh, I think, a thing that people are are coming, especially nowadays, uh, to <laughs> try and understand in a lot more real sense, whereas before it was, you know, um, obviously, it's kind of only the 20th century where we start to really deal with PTSD or, you know, shell shock yeah. to PTSD and um, where we are now. And uh, it's, it's so interesting to see uh, how the Holocaust itself and events like that um, uh, have affected that kind of understanding. And as we get more into the idea of trauma, how we can sort of reread history through that lens. Uh, Absolutely. Especially yeah. our own family, because I do, I agree that I also lost both my grandparents about uh, when I was under 10. Uh, so, mm-hmm. but I also remember um, the effect. My grandfather also passed away first and the effect it had on my grandmother, who had actually a very similar kind of um, reliance mm-hmm. on her partner as yes. well. Um, yeah. Which I think was inevitable, right? If, if two people get together after an event like that, uh, my grandparents were married on Cyprus probably within the year after the Holocaust, give mm-hmm. or take. Yeah. So, um, same idea where it's like you, you do kind of have to build pieces with somebody else because you have nobody else to build with. There's and then no you lose that, right. And then you lose that person at some point. And then, yeah. So there is some craziness that goes along with that. Very much so. I absolutely agree. Um, so how did how did you come by these stories? Uh, for me personally, I know that mm-hmm. my grandparents were not particularly open, um, especially mm-hmm. my grandmother who had suffered uh, immensely uh, in Auschwitz for uh, a large period of time, um, whereas mm-hmm. my grandfather was had never actually been in the camps. He had hid in the woods, so that was a whole different thing. Um, oh my goodness, that was the same as my grandfather. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. They, my grandmother was in the camp much much longer than my grandfather and his brothers. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So I thank God my grandfather never even uh, was in the camps. Actually, that's um, he, good. He yeah. had uh, spent the entire war hiding. Um, hiding. Wow. Which I think also is why uh, maybe these women needed uh, to rely on somebody. You know, I always think about that a lot about how uh, yeah. obviously a camp experience would. Uh, change somebody a lot more than uh, non-camp experience. Um, Absolutely. But mm-hmm. uh, so, how did you hear, hear your story? Because for me, it was more like uh, I heard them from my parents and not my grandparents. Right. Partially because of my right. age, but also just the caginess that my grandparents had around uh, the topic. Right around it. I I have to say I was very fortunate because while my grandfather, or excuse me, my grandmother, really had a, a very hard period after my grandfather passed away. Ultimately, she she did get better, um, and I talk about that a little bit in, in the novel, and I plan – I'm currently working on a sequel to it, which will further carry the story to America. So the piece I wrote for the Jewish Literary Journal is actually going to be part and parcel in the story that I am currently working on and the novel I'm currently working on. So you'll see even more about their journey to America and what they did when they came here. Um, So while my grandmother had experienced a lot of mental 
uh, anguish after my grandfather passed away. She recovered. She, she, it, it took her going to Israel and being reunited with a cousin of hers in Israel for her to, to turn the corner. And she was gone for about six months before she came back to America. And I remember it so clearly because I remember when she left, she was just a broken woman. And when she came home, she was, she was completely different. She was happy and very youthful. Uh, and that's the grandmother I got to see growing up. She, she passed away just this past February. So she was 96 years old when she passed oh. away. So I was very fortunate that I had her in my life for as long as I did. And we were very close. She didn't share a lot of her stories with my father or my uncle, to my understanding. But I, when I became interested in the topic, I started asking her questions, and she opened up to me. I based my entire novel on an interview I did with her back in, I'd say, like the late 90s. I sat down with her. I had a video camera, and she just told me everything that she could in about an hour and a half period of time and it's that interview that I based my novel on so I was so fortunate that I got it directly from her all the stories came directly from her and her memories and I don't know if it was the fact that enough time had passed that they weren't as painful but she I could tell that it still hurt her to talk about it but it was also very healing I want to say and the fact that I have this video especially now that she's gone it's one of my most cherished possessions so I I will always go back and watch it just to hear her voice to see her laughter to remember that period of time when I got to sit with her and listen to it and that was how I came about the stories she told me personally when we sat down together and then um to a lesser extent in moving forward, even though my father is still here and my, you know, his generation is still here, I don't know as many of those stories as I do from earlier. So I am have to take a little bit more liberty in my writing, but I also have a lot of questions to ask my family. So I'm still trying to piece the more recent history together. I feel like I know a lot about what happened during the war, not so much about them in their lives after they came to America. So I still have a lot of research and interviews to do. But for my grandmother, I was very fortunate that I had her. Yeah, that is very fortunate. Um, mm-hmm. It's interesting that uh, you know more about the war than after the war. I wonder what that I says. I don't know. I don't know if that says anything, but it's just interesting. Um, I said that too, yeah. Yeah, because I think it's unusual, right? Usually, it's, it's, yeah. you know, we're here now and we would understand our history from here, but not right. so much before. Right. And my dad didn't really talk about it. What what I knew about from him was he once he assimilated his he he was he started first grade here. He learned the English language in the schools here. He was very much American. And when he met my mother, it was a very they were in college. Um, they, it was, everything was very much what I am used to. So I think I was very interested in, in the life that came before mm-hmm. that. And that's why I focused so much on where we came from, where our roots were, what life was like for the previous generations. But now I want to know more about, about what happened after that and how they assimilated and how they became American. It's the story of becoming an American that I'm really interested in pursuing in this next project that I'm working on. It's, that's interesting. I think it's interesting because uh, the way you frame yours is about, um, let's say, your story 
about how it is to become American. And that's so interesting because mm-hmm. I, I'm writing a similar story, but I think of it in such a different, um, like to me, it's not about becoming American. To me, it's about that, mm-hmm. that question of trauma. I think it's interesting how we each pick which aspect of the story, um, kind sure. of resonates with us and we enter that through there. Cause for me, it's, it's really about like how to live with that trauma afterwards. And that's where Absolutely. I enter. And then for you, it seems yeah. to be more the American, which is a completely different way of, which is, you know, obviously nothing wrong one way or the other. It's just interesting to see right. um, that difference. Um, and because you're kind of seeing it as the American, it was interesting in your story that um, you don't reveal the year or the origin country mm-hmm. until like halfway through. And I was just curious mm-hmm. if that was a conscious decision or if that was just what happened or why hide, maybe not hide, but, you know, not, not lead to those things right away, you know. Uh, that's that's an interesting question. Yeah, I am. Um, I don't think it was an intentional thing on my end. I I'm trying to remember when I sat down to actually write it. For me, writing is very organic. Uh, the thoughts will come, and they'll I'll just type them out. I don't do a lot of plotting. I don't do a lot of um, outlining. I just kind of sit down with my ideas and <clears throat> excuse me and let them come out on the page. So when I when I wrote this. I, I don't think it was an intentional thing. Um, however, I, I was aware of the dates myself. I had gone to Ellis Island with a girlfriend um, back in 2017 and did a lot of research into the record. So I found the manifest of the ship that my grandparents and my father came on, and they came over in, in 1950. And they and I printed that up and I have that in in my office at home. I have um, done further research to find out where they left from Germany. Um, So I don't think it was like anything I was trying to hide or it wasn't a stylistic thing on my end. It just kind of happened that way, I think, that I went right into the story about it. Fair enough. It doesn't have to be. It was just just something I noticed. I'm like, oh, there's – I don't know where I am yet. And then I got it. I got it. All right, cool. Um, and then I guess the question is, why did they leave Germany? It seems like they were there post Holocaust and they had gotten married yeah. and had a kid, um, which yes. is rare, but not unheard of. So why, why mm-hmm. leave Germany then when it right, seemed like right. things were on the up and up, let's say? Right. Well, and it, it's true that my, my grandfather and his family, uh, I think as I said, they did not have the same experience as my grandmother. My grandmother came from a very small town in Poland. Uh, was, she was very religious. She came from a, a much more orthodox family. My grandfather, on the other hand, he and, and his siblings were were in a much bigger city. Uh, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, uh, Katowice. And I believe it was like on the, 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 the border of Germany and Poland. It, it was Polish, but I believe it, it kind of went back and forth uh, in terms of territory who claimed it. Yeah, but it was a much bigger city, and they were more secular. They also had a family business that before the war, and were were much more well off than my grandmother was. So they both came from different experiences. My grandfather and his family were also they were they they had lighter hair and they all had blue eyes, so they were able to assimilate much more in the German culture. So they 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 did not get discovered until much later in the war, and at that point they fled and hid in hid in the woods as well. They ultimately were rounded up towards the end of the war, so they did experience some time in the in the camps, but they did not have the same length of time that my grandmother had. So 
after the war, they still had, my grandfather didn't want to leave as much as my grandmother wanted to leave. They resettled in Nuremberg and started the business again, the business they had had before the war, my grandfather and his brothers. And my grandmother came from a family of 10, uh, eight siblings and her parents, and she and her brother were the only ones that survived. My grandfather also came from a large family, and he and seven other siblings survived the war, and they all found each other after the war. So they really started life anew in Nuremberg. Then my grandfather's brother decided that he and his wife were going to come to America. I don't know. This is where I need to do more research because I, I want to know what, what drove them to decide to leave Germany uh, when they were all making a pretty decent living there. But when my grandfather's brothers, his two brothers, decided to come to America, it was my grandmother who ultimately made the decision for the family. She said in her interview to me that the soil was blood in Germany. And that line has stuck with me. And I think she was the one who really pushed my grandfather to leave. I don't know that he necessarily would have, but ultimately it was when his two brothers came that he decided, okay, I'm going to come too. We want to continue our family all together. So that's why they ended up coming here. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, yeah. I guess yeah. that makes sense in that if you experience it differently, you would have a different reaction to the place itself. Right. Um, right. I don't think my grandmother was ever fully comfortable in Europe after the war. Um, and so I think she jumped at the opportunity when she saw her brother-in-laws and their family coming to America to really push my grandfather to go. Yeah. I know my grandparents had no interest in ever uh, going back. Yeah. That they left as yeah. soon as possible and, and had no interest in ever uh, going yeah. back. So, yeah, that's interesting. And then I think I'm going to get to this question which maybe I should have started with, but your title, mm-hmm. Our America, which is different mm-hmm. than, um, which indicates ownership is the right way to put that. So I was just mm-hmm. curious as to what, what ownership was being taken here of America or um, why our, that word. Our America. And again, I think when I wrote this piece, um, there, there, were, there were a lot of things happening with immigrants in the United States. And politically, I didn't necessarily agree with what was going on. So I, that was, I think, a driving force in in my writing of this piece. And when I when I expressed our America, I wanted it to show that America was a place for my family that welcomed us. It was it was a hard transition, but we found success here. We found roots here. We found a life here. Um, and I, I wanted there was there was a lot of a lot of political conversation going on at the time. And I wanted to show what America meant to me and, and what it still does mean to me. And what what I, I I don't like to discuss political in political terms, but I feel that we it, it is a place of open arms for all races and all people and I and it was for my family and I hope going forward it will continue to be that way. So that's why I wrote it as our America. It's not one particular races America, one particular um, religion's America. It is a place for all who need to come here to find a new life. And that was that was why I wrote it as Our America. So how do you, I guess the next logical question is, now that it's been three years, let's say, since it was mm-hmm. written or published at least, um, mm-hmm. how do you see the story in context now, especially now that you're working on the book, including this story 
or at least mm-hmm. uh, using the story in some sense. And then also, obviously, we're in a specific political climate at the moment. Um, yes. So how do you kind of see this within that uh, framework? Well, I mean, I still think it's an issue that's up for – that is still a contentious issue. I really do believe it is still – I mean, there's many things right now that are – that are are being debated and talked about and and argued over and I and I I I feel the same way I did then I I I want America to be a welcoming place that's what I want and I and so I really hope that that legacy that my family entered into and that I grew up in will continue um I get very uncomfortable talking political. Uh, no, I just want to shed it on the light that I see it and what it's always meant to my family and to myself as well. So um, um, I, I think it's as important today as it was at the time, the, the message that I'm hoping to get across. And do you see it as different than, um, let's say, uh, I'm trying to think what, how I want to phrase this question, because I also <laughs> don't think necessarily politics are the, uh, the best way to go about it. Um, I guess it's a, better, it's a better question of now that you're writing the new book um, yes. and you're kind of rediscovering your own history, does yeah. this piece feel like the beginning of that journey, the middle of that journey, the end of uh, not Obviously not the end, I suppose you're working, um, but right. does it, how does that piece fit in? That's um, that's very that's a good question. And I will say that um, since I started the, the second novel, I would say this falls somewhere in the middle. I am starting the second novel from where the first one left off, which was right after uh, my grandparents married. So you are going to see in, in the book where their lives continued in Germany and the birth of my father and then them coming to America. I think it is the halfway point so that you kind of see what, how they picked up the pieces in Europe after the war, and then how they really had to start all over again. Their lives were always a, always a matter of starting over again. And I think that that is one of the things I, I want to illustrate in this second piece is how they were never settled. They were always trying to find a home. And America ultimately happened to be the home that they ended up in, but they they didn't it didn't come easily, and that's where I want to. Sh- that's what I want to show in this next piece. So their journey to America is, I would say, the, the 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 center point of the book. So you'll see the before and the after of them coming to America and what they experience. Thank you for listening to Exegesis. If you enjoyed what you heard, please comment, rate, subscribe, and share. You can also support the show and the journal by donating through the website, PayPal, and Patreon. Much of what the journal does is possible because of supporters like you. Thank you, and see you next time.